Chapter 10, Part 1 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 2 by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10, The Perils of Success. Few people now remember that Clara Barton's success encountered any difficulties at this point in her career. Her published writings make no reference to them. Her book on the Red Cross tells the story as though events proceeded automatically through this period of transition. President Garfield became interested and referred the matter to Secretary Blaine, who became heartily enthusiastic, and he and President Garfield told her to proceed with assurance that the United States would approve the treaty. She did so, and although President Garfield was shot, his successor made the promise good, and the Senate unanimously concurred. That would seem to have been the whole story. But, as a matter of fact, the months that followed the published approval of Secretary Blaine and President Garfield, and the formal approval of the treaty, were among the most anxious and sorrowful of Clara Barton's whole life. The nationwide publicity, which now was freely accorded the movement, introduced Clara Barton to a new form of difficulty. She was well schooled in the discipline of disappointment and deferred hope. Now she came to know of the embarrassments of success swiftly after the red cross came to recognition there rose competing organizations seeking to capitalize her success the first day of august eighteen eighty one saw the issue of volume one number one of the red cross it was a monthly magazine of which there may have been no subsequent issues the official organ of a society known as the red cross it copied Clara Barton's Associated Press article and said, We must say it is rather late for Miss Barton or anyone else to talk about organizing the Red Cross. It then proceeded to tell that this organization had been in existence since 1879. We did not attempt to make this a national affair as we were not in condition to do so. This country was not going to war at any time, and the promoters first considered the propriety of getting the order on a good foundation. Tis true we have not undertaken any public work as yet, but it is a very great undertaking when the territory to be gone over is taken into consideration. We have organized a body of men that no country in Europe can excel for the purpose of carrying out our objects. The real and original Red Cross was, therefore, according to this journal, ready now to become national, and it warned Miss Clara Barton that it had the right of way. It also published a portrait of the real founder of the Red Cross, a gentleman born in england who had come to this country when young and engaged in several enterprises which proved successful none of which were named studied law but gave it up studied medicine but 
apparently did not practice. He was, however, according to this journal, a very great and widely known man, and his portrait showed him with so many badges and decorations upon his right breast, he would surely have had difficulty in drawing his sword. He was the organizer and supreme commander. A grand promenade concert was given in his honor in a very obscure hall in one of the American cities, with a program which the magazine printed in full, consisting chiefly in a recitation selected by Miss Sadie Merriman, a song selected by Miss Mary C. Andrews, a reading selected by Miss Mary Prescott, a piano solo selected by Miss Mary C. Andrews, a reading selected by Elmer E. Prescott, and selected songs with guitar by the Misses Biderman and Father. Besides these, there was an address of welcome and a response by the much-decorated organizer and supreme commander. Clara Barton had a sense of humor. She could not only smile but laugh heartily at competition of this bombastic character. She collected and filed the literature, and it may be presumed that her files contain the only preserved mementos of this organization, which served notice on her that her Red Cross was an innovation. But nevertheless, this was a warning, and one which she had occasion to heed, for immediately a considerable number of competing organizations sprang up in several parts of the country, and some of them gave her great anxiety. She was not superstitious, and apparently did not notice that the second Friday in January, 1882, fell on the 13th. But she recorded that it was a bad Friday for her. Two days before, she had noticed that the wife of a United States senator desired to call on her and bring one or two other ladies with her. She had moved into her new quarters that very week, and not all her household goods were in place so she hastened to put up her curtains and finish her unpacking for it had rained on monday when she expected to move and her plans had been disarranged friday afternoon the wife of the senator came and with her another lady she said she had come partly on business that she had some months before joined a society called the Ladies' National Red Star Association. Footnote. This is not precisely the name which this rival organization assumed. There would appear to be no good reason for recording it. But the fact that there were several such organizations which sprang into being immediately after President Garfield's recognition of Clara Barton should not be forgotten. End footnote. That this society had a meeting this week, and the question of a counter-society came up that this counter-society was said to be called the Red Cross, and appeared to have been organized to step in and do the work which they were doing. 
and it was decided to adjourn the meeting for one week to inform themselves in relation to this Red Cross Society. What was it? What did it propose to do? What had it done? She said she learned near the close of the meeting that I was the head of that society, and she came to ask if it was true, and what did the Red Cross have to say for itself? I told her I believed I was the head of the society of which she wished to learn. She asked what bills we proposed to present to Congress, and I told her none. Why, yes, she said. They told her at the meeting that I had something before Congress. I told her I had a treaty, which I had presented for four years. She wanted to know what work we had done, and I told her of our work in Michigan. She said she knew nothing about the Red Cross, had seen something about it, but thought it was some Catholic thing. Where did we get our authority? Was it a national thing? Had I anything published about it? I had a little pamphlet of two leaves, four years old. I gave her one. She said she was sorry not to get the information she came after. She left, evidently disappointed. I was sorry also. I have no idea whether she came officially, or at her own option, openly, or as a spy. Whatever the motive of the wife of the senator who came to Miss Barton, the organization was one of which she had occasion to learn not a little. It was one that sprang up on the heels of her first success, and it crowded her hard before it was left behind and forgotten. Clara Barton felt uneasy. The treaty was not yet ratified, and she knew not how many wives of senators were in this rival organization, pushed by ambitious women and seeking government approval. Not very much of such competition at that stage of the affair would be necessary to kill the treaty and the Red Cross. She went next day to see a man whose judgment she felt she could trust. She did not find him in his office, but on Sunday he called on her. He had no special advice, was very busy. So are they all. All are busy, and I am to go on with this alone, as I plainly see. I shall make up my mind to let them all go, and I must gird myself for the work and go on with it by myself. I do not believe any member of my society will be of any help to me in this hard work. They are all too busy. The next day she went to the trial of Guteau and heard the closing pleas. She was recognized and given a seat inside the rail and treated with marked attention which gratified her. That afternoon she went to see Senator Latham and asked him to take charge of the treaty in the Senate, and he cheerfully consented. She told him frankly that opposing organizations were already seeking recognition, but he encouraged her. A day or two later she saw Senator Wyndham of the Foreign Relations Committee on whose support she had counted, and he seemed to her to have grown sad and distant, 
and she felt sure he had been approached by those who were opposing her. She found, too, that her return to Washington with its late dinners was not good for her. She resolved to forego heavy dinners, to eat her last hearty meal at three o'clock, and enjoy a big red apple before going to bed. A big red apple was always a means of grace to Clara Barton. On one of the most desolate of these nights, when she came home late in the rain after a disappointing day, she gratefully records that her apple was good. She had cheering word about her finances. Her business affairs, left in the hands of reliable New York bankers, had prospered during her absence abroad. She had used, while in Europe, considerably less than her income. Her principal had swelled somewhat, and her annual income was more by quite a little than what she had expected. About the middle of January she received her complete account and found that she had more money than she thought, and this was a comfort. Her expenses at Dansville, though much increased by her hospitality, had kept well within her annual receipts, and she was safely provided for for life. She need never worry so far as money was concerned. But she was worried. She began to question whether her dream of an American Red Cross would ever come true. It was bitter hard to have it fail after she had won over three presidents, Hayes, Garfield, and Arthur. But fail she thought it must, even after it had shown in Michigan how useful it could be. She seriously thought of returning to Europe, and letting someone else take up her thankless task. She wrote, I am so tired. I sleep very poorly. I can only think of some good way of getting out of this country. I feel as if I should be willing to let all go, if only I could get out, and hear no more strife and bickering lies. Why should I let my life be spoiled by those who are now opposing me and who take the joy out of my sunshine? Why, indeed, she had money enough to live upon in Dansville or in Oxford, or for that matter in Washington, and she owned homes in each of those three places and had income enough to live upon in any one of them or in Europe. Why should she expose herself to weariness, misrepresentation, and cruel disappointment? It will be seen that Clara Barton had some reason to apprehend trouble growing out of the visit of the wife of the senator. Powerful backing had already been secured for the first of the opposing organizations that gave her pain and sorrow. But she prevailed and the Senate at length ratified the treaty without a dissenting vote. Either the senator's wife was more favorably impressed than Clara Barton thought, or her husband refused to be guided by her opposition. But the opponents of Clara Barton were active to the very hour when the treaty was ratified, and there were days when it seemed that she was working at a hopeless task. 
she went to see influential people only to find them out or occupied or indifferent or strangely uncommunicative she was almost in despair there came a day monday february sixth eighteen eighty two when her own feelings changed it did not seem like other days there was either much to do or nothing to do i knelt at my bedside and asked earnestly tearfully for guidance i only want to know my way i feel that i can walk it if i can be made to see it i am so weary of all this strife this unrest this doubt i am willing to let the work go into other hands if all goes as hoped i can call an executive committee meeting announce the ratification of the treaty hand in my resignation and get out of it all if they want the society they can keep it if not it will die if let alone and some other can be organized or they can take the one that is now opposing me then i can go and rest it has been my part to do the work of the treaty i have tried to do it faithfully and it has met with little moral support even from my own committee i will try with god's help to go on faithfully to the end with no support but his and if he will give it when this is done i shall be ready to lay the burden down even if my enemies gain the advantage of it this has been a day of instruction and discipline and i dare hope not lost she went to the state department mr adee reassured her he did not think there would be any trouble about the treaty or that she need fear the opposition she had notice of the committee meeting and she went to the senate she was misdirected and went to one or two wrong rooms but finally found the committee on foreign relations with senator wyndham in the chair he greeted her cordially which surprised her after his recent apparent coldness and evasiveness he introduced her to senator edmonds but that senator insisted upon greeting her as an old friend they heard her with sympathy took her little four-year-old two-leaved tract and spoke no word about the opposition a few days later senator latham called and told her things were not going as well as he had hoped senator wyndham he said was favorable but troubled the matter seemed hung up at the state department she told him she would go to the state department herself and see what was the trouble his good kind heart was touched and his eyes were full he did not know any other way than for her to do this and so she went she was admitted immediately to the department of state and told confidentially that it was all right the secretary of state had conferred with the president and they were all ready to recommend the treaty to the senate would she like to see the treaty would she indeed she would it must be a secret unsigned documents were not supposed to be shown 
but the Secretary of State would be pleased to know whether this treaty was exactly what she wanted. She had never seen a treaty and did not know what it looked like. It was a volume, a kind of unbound book of soft parchment, something like fourteen inches square. She sat down and read it word for word, the secretary of state watching her intermittently as he busied himself about other matters line by line the full significance of it came over her it quoted in full the text of the eighteen sixty four convention and recited in effect the whole situation into which this would bring the united states in its relation to other nations it was a great and solemn document such as she had never before handled, and her life and hope were bound up in it. At the very end were the formal words of ratification, with blank spaces for the signature of the President and Secretary of State, and a place for the big seal of the United States of America. I had kept my eyes clear enough to read to the very end, but then I could hold up no longer— and how long a cry I indulged in, I do not know. But I know that it rested me, and after a while he stepped over and asked, very gently, How does it suit you? I told him it was all I could have hoped for, but I was ashamed to have done so badly myself. He, laughing, said that was all right. I asked him when it would be signed, and he said, any time now. At last it was done. Why had she worried so much about it? She worried because she knew there was reason to worry, and because there were so few to worry, and because she did not know whether her worrying would do any good. For it is necessary to tell a little, a very little, about why she worried. There lie before me, as I write, certain letters written to Clara Barton by a woman who came to her in the latter part of her struggle to secure the recognition of the Red Cross, and who wrote to Miss Barton that to be associated with her in such work would be the crowning glory of her life. I should think it a greater glory to be a doorkeeper in such a society as the Red Cross than to be well, Mrs. President of the United States, if in the humblest way I can help you, I am at your service. There may be nothing for me to do, but if there is, command me. Sadly, in after years, Clara Barton gathered up these and other documents, arranged them neatly in order, and endorsed them, the enclosed papers will serve to show in part what the Red Cross had to meet in its incipiency before we had the treaty. This woman had been our secretary and trusted friend, but by some means became a strong competitor and organized an opposing society. That is all she said about it. No word of bitterness or self-justification but this was not the only woman who rushed to her when she first gained publicity, proclaimed that she would be a servant of the servants of Clara Barton, 
learned all her confidential affairs, and then betrayed her. This volume will make no catalogue of those who ate of her bread and accepted her confidences, and who proved base and ungrateful. This particular woman is mentioned because it seemed to Clara Barton that she might very possibly defeat all that Clara Barton was working for. She gained friends in high places, and she knew just whom Clara Barton counted to be her friends and how to approach some of them. There lie before the author, also, certain anonymous letters received at this time, some of them written in one city and sent to other cities to be mailed. There were also some vicious newspaper articles, one of them first published in a remote southern city and later copied into Washington and Philadelphia papers, and these Clara Barton clipped and labeled with the name of the person who, without any question, she believed to be their author. These and the anonymous letters and the letters of affection are all in the same package. Clara Barton arranged them, and she thought she knew. Now, on the day that Clara Barton visited the office of the Secretary of State, she was so overjoyed that she went straight to the White House to thank the President. Mr. Arthur was not in, but her little note was accepted by his secretary, who smiled and assured her that he understood, and that the president would be glad to receive it. And she went home with a happy heart, and Senator Latham sent her a big bouquet of roses that night. The next Monday was the day set for Mr. Blaine to deliver the memorial address on President Garfield and she had a seat in the gallery of the house of representatives which was a much coveted honor she rose in full expectation of going and she went but at breakfast she received her mail and there was a letter from her rival it was the most abusive of all i have ever received from her she charged me with all little meannesses, and warned me if I do not stop people's tongues, she will take redress upon me, either through the press or by law. It had the effect to stun or daze me until I did not want to go to the address, but I did go. That was one of the things that was oppressing Clara Barton in those days. That was why she was troubled when the wife of a senator came to see her and ask whether there was such a thing as the Red Cross, and what it was, and why it was opposing another organization of which the senator's wife was a member. That was why she was worried when the chairman of the Committee on Foreign Relations grew strangely distant. But she went to hear Mr. Blaine, and she met prominent people, some of whom knew her. Two days later, she had confidential tidings that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee had unanimously approved the treaty, and that it would doubtless be discussed in executive session of the Senate on the following Tuesday. But it hung on for another month, a month through which it was hard for her to go, but through which she went bravely. On Thursday, March 16th, she felt as though hope was almost hopeless. She had no heart to speak that day, 
had more tears than words. It has been a sad day. She wrote these words that evening, weary and heartsick, but at this point was interrupted by a note from Senator Latham. The note will bear printing. U.S. Senate Chamber, Washington, March 16th, 1882. Miss Barton, I have the gratifying privilege of informing you of the ratification by the Senate of the Geneva Convention, of the full assent of the United States to the same, by the action of the Senate this afternoon. I had the injunction of secrecy removed so that it could be published at once. The whole is in print, and if I get time, I will send you some copies in the morning. I go home tomorrow to be gone a week. Laos Deo. Very truly, E. S. Latham. It ought to have brought her joy, but she wrote, I had waited so long and was so weak and broken, I could not even feel glad. I laid down the letter and wiped my tired eyes. Before she got to bed, she had another sad tale to hear, of dissensions among those who should have been rejoicing with her, but were displeased, and she went to bed ill. Many of the people who from this time came to Clara Barton, with an earnest desire to be permitted to share in her labor, were thoroughly and permanently loyal and some of them are to this day among the foremost of those who hold her name in reverence there were others however not less sincere who were an embarrassment to her coming in some cases with a maximum of enthusiasm and a minimum of discretion there were still others who after working with her long enough to gain her confidence, became fired with an ambition to organize societies of their own. There was a Blue Anchor Society, now entirely forgotten, but which caused her a great deal of anxiety. It was established by a woman whom she counted a sincere friend, who learned about the red cross from clara barton and utilized her knowledge in the formation of a rival society which at one time threatened to be more prominent in high places than the red cross itself later there was organized a white cross society which gained such recognition that in one of the dewey parades at the end of the spanish war it was placed ahead of the red cross it had powerful friends and the bill for its recognition by congress passed the senate but did not pass the house these rival organizations appear very puerile and futile now but at the time they were a source of great anxiety to clara barton it sometimes seemed to her that there were not many people whom she could trust to maintain permanently high and unselfish motives like her own if she failed as she was charged with failing to share responsibility with her associates that failure had behind it some very unhappy experiences that need not here be recorded End of chapter ten Part 1